Welcome to the 905er podcast. My name is Roland Tanner. I am Joel McLeod. The longer the COVID-19 pandemic goes on, the more confusing it seems to be for many of us. While there's been broad consensus about the need to limit social interaction to keep the spread of the virus under control, and the vast majority of people have always been willing to do whatever is asked of them to protect themselves and others, there's far too often been confused and contradictory messaging from different levels of government. The result is that as we enter a third year of living with COVID-19, many of us feel as confused about what lies ahead as we did back in 2020. Furthermore, as the pandemic has gone on, the reasons we're staying at home have evolved, away from the easy-to-understand need to protect our own health and towards more nebulous objectives such as protecting healthcare from overload, maintaining the workforce, saving the economy, and most pr- frustratingly, protecting those who have thus far refused to protect themselves. So to try to bring some clarity to where we are now, uh, how the government has handled the pandemic and what we can expect over the next year or more, we uh, invited an epidemiologist Dr. Todd Coleman onto the podcast. Todd Coleman received his PhD in epidemiology and biostatistics in 2014 from the University of Western Ontario. After his PhD studies, he worked as a postdoctoral fellow at Ryerson University, then as a public health epidemiologist with the Middlesex London Health Unit. Currently, he is an assistant professor in the Department of Health Sciences at Wilfrid Laurier University, where he teaches courses in epidemiology and population health. His research focuses on issues of social inclusion and health equity. Well, I'd like to welcome uh Dr. Todd Coleman uh, to the 905er for our first, actually, it's our first interview of 2022. So you have the uh, distinguished honor of uh, <sighs> of that uh, illustrious title, I suppose. <laughs> We're still in the uh, in the grips of this global pandemic, and we, we seem to be. It, it a lot of people. I think people, some people might start referring it to as the uh, the groundhog pandemic because we kind of keep doing the same things over and over <laughs> and over again. And surprise, surprise. Um, nothing's changed, like nothing's really changing. Like we're not, we're not, we're not getting any traction. Right. Uh, maybe what's the, what was the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again (laughs) and expecting a different result each time. Um, can you, can you give us your take on how the, how our public health, um, in Ontario, the, the, from the, the ministry all the way down to, I guess, the local units, uh, should be, uh, you know, how, how would you grade them on their behavior so far two years into this pandemic yeah that's a that's a good question uh, I'm I, I'm very respectful and I've seen quite a bit happening at the local levels in terms of the responses um, the 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 pivoting to scheduling mass vaccinations uh, the the collecting of data the understanding of the need for uh, region specific uh, uh, measures that need to be in place. Uh, so I, I'd grade them pretty high at the local level. Uh, when I move up into the ministerial level, uh, the grade goes down a little bit, uh, unfortunately, in terms of the the policy decisions that, that have and are being made currently. Um, I, I'm not as... Uh, I'm not as impressed if I want to if we want to use those words as as what's been happening. There doesn't seem to be a lot of foresight, especially considering two years into this. Uh, like you said, we're we're going through the motions again, another wave, and and 
lessons learned from previous ones don't seem to be happening. Well, right now everyone's talking Omicron. Oh, it's it, you know it's le- it's not as severe. It's the it's the lighter COVID, if you will. <clears throat> um, yeah, I mean we're su- we. I, I just want to note to our, our listeners, we're recording this on Thursday, uh, the day after it was announced that on uh, Monday we're going back to school uh, uh, in Ontario. Um, so that's that's our context for this recording. Um, you know, what what. I had I had a thought that just escaped my my mind there, but you know what, what's the what's I, I'm 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 trying to put this in, in, into words a, a bit here, and I'm I'm stumbling over my own words. But the, the 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 at the ministry level, why why are we not seeing a more proactive approach? You know what what it, what is what what are you seeing that we should be doing uh, at the at the ministerial level to to really kind of clamp down on this and stop going through it again? Yeah, uh, we're in a unique position. So just first to address the the Omicron uh, and being a milder version, a lot of that has to do with the fact that we have a higher, we have vaccinations in, in these waves, high proportion of people who are vaccinated. Um, we're still seeing in the unvaccinated severe COVID illness uh, happening. So that we're in a different situation at that point. And to to answer the, the next part, um, in terms of of what we should be doing, um, we we seem to to have abandoned some of the measures that we were using in the past uh, to help us move forward. The testing, uh, and this is is where I, I I feel very strongly is is testing is key, right? We want to prevent illness as much as possible, and vaccinations are a great tool for that. Uh, but preventing illness also happens from people knowing whether or not they have COVID. Uh, and it, it's very much the fact that we don't have the capacity right now to test everybody who potentially has COVID uh, and we're targeting testing right now. And that's that's where uh, earlier use of the rapid tests, um, more uh, on the government's uh, part in, in procur- procuring uh, uh, rapid tests, uh, those kinds of things really do go a long way to help prevent uh, 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 further infections down the chain. We're looking at chains of infection, right? So right now, with the amount, we're looking at more like a web of infection because of so, what's happening. But um, the the more we test, the more the more we we know. So that that's one of the parts, one of the main parts. Um, that was that was going on. I think in terms of the general, if I was to speak generally about what's happening, is there just seems to be a lack of foresight about what's happening. Uh, we're not we're not the only province. We're not the only country that's been through this. We see other countries. We see examples from Israel where uh, we saw a lot of evidence of of vaccines losing their efficiency over time. If that were if 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 I was in a, a position of power in the government, I would have said, "Oh wait, we need to start thinking quite quickly about how to launch an effective booster campaign, not dawdling along and saying, "I'll I'll wait and see what happens." We know what's going to happen. It's not it's not a, a confusing situation. We're not different from other people. We're breathing air in proximity to other people. That's essentially the basics of it. It's reassuring in some ways to to hear someone who actually 
it's qualified in the subject kind of saying what my gut feeling is is that throughout this thing everything happens two weeks too late it's like we see you see omicron coming most recently okay well we need to be ready for this and then you know after christmas suddenly the premier stands up and says you know whatever his quote was about making a decision in 30 seconds 30 seconds after two weeks of of kind of (laughs) (laughs) thinking about it um right and I just want to come back to that. That testing is key element, which is right now. If I if I were feeling sick today, I would the the current current government uh, advice is I would then just assume that I have COVID. There's no going to be no statistics about me. There's going to be no kind of official record about me. But I am to assume I have COVID. Stay home. And uh, now, I mean, there's something that I've certainly been very aware of during this whole thing is, is how people's I think this is just human nature. People rationalize things. So the number of people I've heard who have said things like, well, I have a bit of a cough at the moment, but I, I'm sure I know it's not COVID because of something which which tells us absolutely nothing. Or, you know, I had contact with someone who had a cough, but I'm sure that's mm-hmm. human nature. Without that testing element, you, you you're then you you're you're reliant on people's kind of judgment of what what they have, which is notoriously poor. <laughs> Right. So, I mean, you know, is there any excuse at this stage for saying, well, we don't have the capacity to test for everybody, so let's just give up? I mean, is that is that excusable? Or, or do you think it's just a matter of they should have put more money into more testing? No, it's not. It's not excusable. The basis for any public health uh, uh, action is based on data. And if we don't have the data uh, to tell us what we're looking at, uh, we can make estimates all we want, uh, uh, looking at the da- the way that cases are are now, um, but we it, it, it's not it's not uh, it's not really that excusable. Is the the basis of any public health action is based on having accurate data, and right now we don't have that. Uh, I mean, another element of, of all this throughout this whole pro- throughout COVID is is. Yeah, I mean, I felt that kind of lack of reliable data. And to an extent, in Canada, we have very strict privacy rules, which is a good thing, mm-hmm. by and large. Yeah. But also, the, the rules are so strict that, you know, things like, I mean, I actually did this, there are statistics out there now on, you know, what, what percentage of people in an ICU are unvaccinated versus, you know, and then people immediately misunderstand those statistics because they say, well, there's more people in ICU who are vaccinated. And it's like, well, that's just bad math on your part. That's not <laughs> the vaccine not working. And um, uh, however, that, yeah, that, that kind of um, reluctance to say where the disease was spreading most where it, with the things that are the bread and butter of your job, I presume, of, of how spread happens, where it happens. Uh, um, in, in fact, you know, I, just for anybody who's listening who doesn't actually know what an epidemiologist is, um, <laughs> perhaps just, just sort of go over what, 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 what you are and what, what distinguishes you from, a, from another kind of doctor, in fact, uh, just because it's, it's one of those words that people throw out there that we're all meant to understand now and uh, don't necessarily. Yeah, uh, d- it's a good question. So an epidemiologist in, in very, very basic is someone who studies epidemics. Uh, so it's, it's, it's the, basically the study of the causes and the distributions of, of disease in a population. 
uh, is what it really boils down to. And also uh, understanding how to control and to change those distributions. I, I, I just, I want to jump in, in the, uh, on that note there. Your job as an epidemiologist, you, re- you rely a lot on public data, uh, the statistics of, of hospitalizations and, and whatnot to kind of build models, analyze the status quo, et cetera. What's your take on, I, I mean, I was looking on, on uh, online just before we logged on here and the Minister of Education was saying that they're going to not notify parents of any COVID hospitalizations or any COVID cases, forget hospitalizations, just, you know, cases of COVID in, <clears throat> in public schools, unless it's, you know, 30%, not even a, of COVID, just 30% absenteeism right. in the school. Can you tell us a little bit, um, I know if a lot of parents are concerned about that just from their own sense of, of well-being, can you tell me how does that impact your job in terms of taking that data and saying, you know, how prevalent COVID is in the school system or just in maybe in public, um, in, in, in a public neighborhood or in a public or in a city at, at large? How, how does that impact your work? Uh, yeah, that that impacts our uh, the work very, very, very clearly. Um, we, we always have to, the, the other component of what we look at is assessment of the data and whether or not we can reliably think that it's it's accurate or not, uh, or a true reflection of what's happening. Uh, it, it, it was never, it's never been perfect, uh, case assessment. Um, it's never captured the entirety of people who have had COVID, uh, but with the generalized testing that was happening and the availability of testing, it was relatively accurate. Now, withholding information uh, when we're talking about the absenteeism, there's a couple of things that, that came to mind for me for that. When I was listening to the conference uh, that was happening uh, yesterday, the, the media conference, uh, and Dr. Moore uh, was suggesting that this was based on the 30% absenteeism, that that threshold is based on other respiratory illnesses um, in the past, that was what they were using for other others in in schools and classrooms. Now, to me, that that immediately struck something in my in my head because number one, uh, while COVID is transmitted largely through respiratory, uh, while it's airborne, um, it manifests in different ways than other respiratory viruses. It, it set it can settle in different parts of your body. We've seen uh, evidence of that over and over again. Uh, and the other thing is, this is much more severe than than the flu. It's much more severe than the common cold. Uh, and using a threshold of another respiratory virus, is, it just seems really misguided. Uh, uh, and I, I feel as if parents uh, should have a little more information available to them to make the decisions uh, uh, to keep their families healthy. Um, so uh, just a quick follow-up. So your job as an epidemiologist is to build models of presumably future waves, which I think at this point we're all we're all assuming there's going to be a future variant of some sort coming down the pipeline. That's the way this this seems to be working out at the moment. You need to build this a, a potential future model. I'm going to assu- I'm going to assume. Correct me if I'm wrong, but based on the kind of the previous waves data to say, okay, right. this is what we learned from the last last one. We're going to infer that this is going to happen in the in the in the, in the given this data. We're going to infer this this might be, might happen uh, down the road. Does this lack of 
data reporting on the on the ministry uh, on the provincial government side. Is this going to impede our future models? Is this going to impede our way to predict the severity of future waves coming down the down the road? There is potential for that. Uh, the good thing is, is we we there are other jurisdictions in other countries that do reliably report data. So we have models from other countries to reliably predict what we're going to see in our context. Uh, I would think, and I would hope that we would have more accurate data in Ontario um, to help us make these decisions and guide our decision-making. Uh, but unfortunately, it's just been left so long that we can't we can't have that right now. Uh, we're relying on the, the you've probably heard the term lagging indicators. So people being hospitalized for, for COVID, people being admitted to ICU for COVID um, and seeing those trajectories and saying, okay, that seems to match what the case case rise looks like. Uh, <clears throat> changing direction a, a little bit, what do you think, I mean, what would be your best estimate? And I'm guessing, I'm, I'm sure this is very unscientific and unfair question in some ways. But I mean, the governments at all levels keep on talking about, um, you know, plans to reopen up and, and they're still talking about, you know, when we get back to normal, when when this is over. Do we now have to stop talking in those kinds of terms and, and rather talk about, I don't know, a, bit, a, a more positive sort of spin to put on it, but um, getting to a place where where we live with COVID um, in a, in, a, in a different way, where we're, we're rather than kind of telling people what ultimately seems to me to be at this point a little bit of a lie that one day this will be over, uh, that this is the plan for living with COVID for the next 20 years. Um, you know, I heard the other day that the UK has a kind of six, you know, they're now talking in, in, in six years ahead of this pandemic, you know, um, and I guess at some point we'll stop calling it a pandemic and call it um, uh, whatever, you know, it's, it's just a, a disease yeah. that's just in the population forever. And that's just like, like flu or whatever. Um, so what do you think, that might look like, and what what do you think? Uh, you know, the, the politicians should perhaps be. How should they be? I don't want to say spinning it, but how should they be explaining this to the public now in a way that might be more reflective of reality that we're going to be dealing with in six months, a year, two years? Well, I, I ideally we would have long term plans in place uh, to to understand and to. To, to see the proactive steps that, that, that are being taken to understand that it, it's going to be circulating for a while. Like this isn't, we, it's not the two week thing that we thought in, in February of 2020. Um, it, it, it's circulating. Uh, we, but the thing is we're in a very different spot right now. So we do have the tools to minimize the severity. Um, there, there's a number of things that I wish we could see on the part of, the government, I, a very solid line about the protective effects of vaccination. Uh, don't don't use language like what was used in yesterday's press conference about the vaccine being new. Ten billion people have taken it. Um, it's not new at this point. Uh, so highlighting and educating the public on what this could look like 
with a really high vaccination rate is great. Setting up the infrastructure, this is for me uh, as, as someone who's in, in understanding healthcare and in, an epidemiologist, I want to understand uh, the public health efforts. Are you going to be uh, uh, are you going to be funding public health initiatives to ensure that we're not left in a place where, uh, for example, your entire public health staff is forced to move it and pivot into something like COVID? Because not everybody has COVID, uh, and we're thinking about it. We need to be thinking about the general health of the population. And unfortunately, our public health system has been so stretched that uh, we've neglected a lot of the other stuff. Uh, that that occur in that occurs in people's lives in terms of healthcare. Um, I think a really solid plan, uh, just to really bring it down to the basics, a really solid plan about information, both obtaining information and educating the public, uh, and and really having that infrastructure in place because uh, this could happen again. And I, I don't want to be left, and I don't want to. I don't know about you, but I don't want to live the rest of my life thinking, oh, here we go again. I get to sit in my house for another few weeks mm-hmm. uh, without seeing people. Um, on So let's, uh, let's, let's throw it out there. Uh, do you think vac- uh, vaccine mandates work? Because I've, I've heard, let's face it, uh, po- the political discussion over vaccines is on one side say, oh, we, we have to educate and encourage the remaining, I think, what, 15% of the population to get vaccinated now. Um, and that, I mean, it sounds like a small number that that 15% is causing a lot of damage uh, to our, like our, our, our way of life. I'll, I'll just bluntly say it mm-hmm. at this, at this point, should we just start saying no vaccine mandates? If you want to go out in public, if you want to go into a restaurant, into a mall, into a movie theater, gym, if you just want to go out in public, you need to show some kind of vaccine passport or vaccine card or, or something uh, to engage, interact with services uh, in the public. Are, are we at that or do, or is this, is this a fallacy? Do, do they not work? Uh, well, it, it, it's interesting because there's a lot of misconceptions about uh, what the vaccine does and doesn't do. You can still get COVID if you're vaccinated. We, we know that. Um, in terms of the mandates, they are very effective uh, public health tools uh, that help prevent infectious diseases. Uh, there are a number of, of vaccine mandates that are currently in schools right now um, that prevent a number of different illnesses, and we don't see them. Uh, we know that that, that helps. Uh, and the, the thing with the, the vaccines is the approach that was taken, and that's it seems to con- continually be taken, is that the government seems to want to vaccinate people in chunks which is a little confusing on, on my part, other than vaccinating the most vulnerable in the population. Uh, they, they do need that, that protection right up front. Uh, vaccinating, for example, the groups of 50 to, to 60-year-olds. Okay, that's great. Get them vaccinated. But they're also interacting with other people in the population at this point. So there should be general vaccination programs. Uh, I went on a bit of a tangent there, but... <laughs> The basics is that vaccine mandates do work, uh, and we see we see the uptake when there are announcements made. Just look at the stuff in Quebec that happened with the the cannabis and the the liquor stores, um, with the bump in 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 vaccination uh, numbers that happened. Mandates do work, and they do prevent illness uh, in the long run. 
And uh, and you touched upon there the the issue that has kind of been in the background um, from day one, which is the herd immunity aspect. Which I guess we're not really looking at herd immunity because you can be vaccinated and still catch it. Um, but mm-hmm. I guess we're looking at herd resistance, maybe. I don't know if that's a thing. <laughs> uh, still, yeah. And yeah, when no, we it's... go through the the, uh, uh, the population in sectors like that, well, you know, Dad's got the vaccine, but but little Jimmy doesn't. Each family doesn't have herd immunity, let, let alone the population at large. Um, is that the kind of problem we're dealing with there? Yeah, I, I think of it as a uh, think about it as a car that's sort of running, uh, driving uncontrollably, and there's no brakes on it. Uh, that's no vaccinations at all. When you get certain levels of vaccination in a population, it you can, you get to start pumping the brakes on these things. Periods of infectiousness recre- uh, decrease. Uh, uh, you end up preventing uh, uh, potential infections from happening and the chains from growing exponentially. Um, yeah, these are the kinds of things I think about with with vaccination. And and what we're doing is is by by vaccinating a ge- the general population is we get to sort of blunt a lot of these chains of transmission that are happening uh, and really slow this down. And th- this is the important thing too, is that when you slow it down, you get the public health system has a better chance to catch up and understand that there are the 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 actual number of people who have COVID. They get to do their jobs efficiently. They get to do the contact tracing. They get to do the recommendations for isolation. Uh, right now, they can't do that. They they're they're left, uh, and that we've got something that's flying through. The vaccinations are great right now. They are blunting things, and you can see this in the data. It's very clear in terms of the hospitalization and ICU data that vaccination is very protective against those outcomes. Um, so, in, in I hope that answered your question. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a moment here because sure. I'm sure there's a, there's a listener uh, listening to this episode and they're saying, you know, Todd, that's great. You know, yeah, get. You know, public health measures, all that great, 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 but you know, we, we always have, we always have to worry about the economy. You know, the the, right. the economy. We have to we have to keep uh, uh, businesses open, and I think that this. My, I'm gonna. I you know, we haven't had anyone from the government on, so I, I'm gonna speak for them. This appears to be that they're approaching this as an either or dilemma. You either have public health or you have a, a an open, robust economy, and you know that it's okay. We'll we'll. Close the economy so public health can catch up. When public health catches up, oh, okay. Well, we need to open up the economy, and then you know it's this yin yang mm-hmm. equation that they're that they're kind of trying to balance. And I think that's the question that everybody's on their minds. There's got to be a middle ground. You now, we uh, a change of behavior, a change of expectations that we all businesses and the public all have to abide into, so that we, we can engage. With each other on a social economic level again, you know, like mm-hmm. we, we this this kind of stop stop start. It, it's driving us all crazy. Uh, our mental health is like to the. I got kids upstairs. I can hear them running around because they're still at home. <laughs> we're all we're all going nuts, and we're thinking there's got to be some kind of middle ground. Is, is that is that unreasonable to assume that 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 or am I am I being a, am I living in a fairy tale for wanting that to happen? Or is that is that something that we can come up with if we just kind of put our heads to the grindstone or shoulders to the grindstone? We just work it out and say, okay, what are we willing to compromise? What are we not? 
It's it's definitely it's the latter. Um, I I agree with you. The economy um, needs to like it needs to function properly. Um, all of these things are intertwined with each other. Um, I think I think from it's not an it's not an either or thing. I think we have very 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 strong tools at our disposal to help blunt this to allow the economy to open up. Um, and we're just not using them to the maximum efficiency that we could be, unfortunately. And those are vaccinations and and mask ma- like mask mandates work. Um, the education there, um, what I find is we we're speaking in too many simplistic terms, right? So uh, uh, people say masks work, okay, that that's true. But what kinds of masks are working? Uh, and how do you how do you wear a mask properly? Those kinds of educational components. I'm sure you both have have been out in public and you've seen the people that have their masks under their nose. Mm-hmm. That does absolutely <laughs> nothing to prevent it's, it's nearly always You're the, the to... older gentleman who you, whose health you fear for the most <laughs> as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, pull exactly. it up, dude. And, and part of, part of you wants to just wave at them and go pull, yeah. pull it up. Pull it up a little bit, just a tiny bit, so that you're covering your nose. Um, these kinds of, of components we, we are, are are important to to distribute. Now, what ends up happening is that what I've seen, and this is my, we get on one course of action and one course of communication, and then all of a sudden they pivot completely, and then you're you're left with a whole new framework of something uh, that you need to learn. Now, mm. in terms of consistency, you, we think back to the basics. Sharing air from someone who has COVID is how this is transmitted. Um, and and those masks and blunting it with vaccines could be very effective, but they're they're just not pushed as much as they could be. And and I, I just I find it really disappointing that that we we start thinking in terms of absolutes. And this is just a, a function of how we think about health in general. Uh, we get sick, we take a pill, it's better. Uh, it's not as simple as that. Uh, we want to prevent these infections in the first place and and this is this is these are the best tools that we can. Is that is that maybe the problem here is that it's the the solutions are fairly simple to prevent the spread of a, of the pandemic. It's just kind of like a you know a, a reminder of change your behavior like you said, wear your mask properly, go get a vaccine, uh, etc. and that's not really like the you don't get like the dramatic finish right you don't, you don't you don't get to make like the big hurrah speech at the end it's just you know wear, wear your mask folks like wear it properly and go get a vaccine uh if you want to go to uh to grab a beer with a with a buddy um mm. that kind of thing is that is that just it like is that like we just just don't have the imagination to conceive of something so simple to to really do like to to really to like just the the simple and the the persistence of that behavior. That's right. Is what, is what it matters. Yeah, it is. It that's it. The 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 persistence of that and people like there there's mis misconceptions because people uh, I'll use the the examples with the vaccines that we thought that two would be enough and then we would be done. So we'd get our mm-hmm. two doses and we'd be done. Uh, this behaves a lot more like like something like a flu shot that we have to get every year. So pivoting and making sure that people understand that it's not that things do change and and the scientific process is with more information and as time goes on we understand more about what we need to do to prevent everything 
in the first place. Uh, coming back to, 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 to another point you just made a few minutes ago, um, you know, and he was saying about, you know, you know, wear masks, but also, you know, don't be so simplistic in terms of, you know, explaining to people what the best masks are, how to wear the masks. What is the best mask? I mean, I know with, with, with Omicron, my mask habits have changed. I'd been out and bought some from a, you know, I bought like permanent washable ones fairly recently mm-hmm. before that. I've been going paper all the way. I thought, oh, I'll, you know, I'm sick of these things. I'm throwing things in the garbage <laughs> and sick of how many paper masks I walk past on the street. I'll get a permanent one. Yeah. But then it's like, I'm not sure I trust this thing to protect me from anything. So I've, now I'm back to paper. What would be your advice to people um, you know, looking for a, for a good mask option? I mean, is it N95 or bust, or is there more to it? With the transmissibility of Omicron being so high, I would it, the N95s are are probably uh, they are the best protection, as well as uh, uh, they prevent you from passing it on to someone else in case you do have it. Yeah, and is. Um... I mean, I was just thinking, my, my mother grew up in the Second World War. Um, I'm presuming within the first year of that war, everybody in the country had been given a gas She was in the UK. Uh, everybody mm-hmm. had been given a, a government-issued, paid-for gas mask. Um, why on earth isn't the government handing these things out to people? It's a good question. I've heard, I've heard of other countries uh, proposing this. Uh, it, it, it's, it's costly, obviously, to send everybody, uh, 35 million people, uh, uh, an N95, but could go a long way. I mean, it, it seems compared with other things that the government does pay for, for all of us, you know, garbage collection or whatever. I mean, it's all covered in the tax ultimately, but whatever, it would be affordable. I mean, I mean, sure, we need it. They don't last forever, so I get that. But I mean, you know, even if they're, yeah. Anyway, that's just, is- it just literally struck me while we were talking. It's like, hang on a minute. I'm, sh- yeah. I'm sure my mother didn't go out at the age of seven and buy a gas mask. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She would have been very proactive. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, uh, it's it's abs- you're absolutely right. So if you think about it in absolute, this is where I, I talk about, and and you you brought it up in terms of long term thinking. So this N95 could be the difference in mo- like in the next few months in hospitalizations and ICU costs. Like I'm sure that the costs, the cost benefit analysis would probably be. Uh, in the positive, if you were to send out some uh, like those masks in terms of of the eventual healthcare costs of not using those, or yeah, uh, and the, yeah, well, yeah. So, so that's an interesting point. And, and again, I think you know, as a society, we've become so uh, unambitious in what we expect of government that 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 I, I'm not aware of that question having really been asked before. And it's like. You know, people talk now about well, you know, feminine hygiene products. Why do women have to pay for these things when they're essential? And that's starting to be. I think Scotland has passed legislation so that they're free now. Um, I think Hamilton's doing something about that as well. Um, this seems very much on the same uh, uh, sort of pathway. Um, and I guess I mean we're, we're sort of drawing towards the end here now. And I was just wondering what what advice you you would give to people people to, to sell like myself who who are so sick and tired i think i mean that's the overwhelming kind of feeling i i, I get now of the population is we've you know most of us we've tried to do everything right we've tried to do what we're asked we've, we've really you know, most of us are not questioning most of us got the vaccine as soon as we could most of us have stayed home 
and it's like you know where you know there's no reward all we're getting is more punishment you know it, it's kind of how mm-hmm. it can feel how it can i'm not saying it's right i'm just saying how it can feel what kind of advice would you give to those people now about you know uh you know sticking with it or 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 the best approach uh to protect yourself and your family without actually going loopy from lack of social interaction uh, yeah that's uh, there's a few things uh uh that i would suggest uh stick with it like you said um they there are benefits to what we're doing in terms of isolation mask wearing all of that stuff um physical distancing and so on uh, the other thing too is is I, I I strongly urge people to really voice that they're tired to their 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 elected officials that they're tired of this. Um, a lot of this is poor planning on on the larger government's part um, and lack of foresight. Um, these aren't confusing things at this point. We're two years in. We know how it works, uh, and we know what prevents this uh, and allows us to stabilize. Uh, that that this system uh, and and we're just they're continually continually ignoring what could be done to make this quite simple um, and and really pressuring your elected officials uh, whether that's uh, at the the regional level or or the the provincial level really making that 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 heard um, is an important thing because at this point they're the ones who are making the calls in terms of what we're doing and what we're not doing. Well, I think we'll leave it at that, uh, that note for uh, this episode. So I'm going to say, say thank you to uh, Todd Coleman, uh, epidemiologist, uh, expert. Uh, he's the guy who actually puts all the stuff on Google for when you do your own research, you're reading him. So listen to him today, folks. <laughs> uh, but thank you very much, Todd, for coming on, sharing your expertise with us, uh, and filling in some of the questions that Roland and I had on, on, the mess that is COVID-19. So thank you very much for your time. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks. That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. Did. 
will. The Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network.